Welcome to this special edition of the podcast. We're going to think about tiny lives, about unborn babies, and about their absolute right to life. The subject's topical in Northern Ireland right now. The Westminster Parliament has imposed so-called abortion rights upon us, and that against the will of the majority here. But the cultural left won't ever be satisfied with the gains they've made. They will always push for further liberalisation. And they will demand that more babies be murdered in the womb to appease what one conservative commentator called the god of the groin. In other words, human lust. And human lust must be satisfied, even if that means little unborn babies have to die. So today we're going to look at the value of our children, born and unborn. Please take your time with this podcast. Go and get your Bible. Start by reading Matthew chapter 19, verse 13 to verse 15. Get yourself a cup of coffee. Bring a notebook. Take time to think. And then take time to pray about this really important issue. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata podcast. Let's read God's Word. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13 to 15. And were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them, and departed thence. What value do we place on tiny human life? The Jews of Jesus' day had respect for the unborn and respect for the newly born child, unlike the pagan nations that surrounded them. In the Old Testament, they are warned not to follow the practices of the Canaanites, who sacrificed their children to Molech and to other pagan false gods, often by burning them to death. The penalty under the law of Moses for infanticide was death. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 2 says, Whoever of the children of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Well, needless to say, the Israelites were a disobedient and a backsliding people. One of the charges led against the people of God by Jeremiah is found in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 34 to 36. It says, But they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them. 
nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Molech worship, child sacrifice, had actually been institutionalized among the so-called people of God. The penalty for the death of unborn children was just as severe. It would be good to turn in your Bible now to Exodus chapter 21, verse 22 to 24. And there it says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. For if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In later Greek and Roman society, the murder of newly born children was considered barbaric and uncivilized, but still it happened. A child would be exposed on a hillside or an open place, and it wasn't even considered murder. Because who knew whether a passing stranger, maybe even even a passing god, might come along and adopt the child. It was a convenient way to salve the conscience and dispose of an unwanted baby. The most likely probability, of course, was that the child would simply die of dehydration or be eaten alive by animals. Now what about our modern society? We have greatly conflicting attitudes about children, don't we? On the one hand, we overindulge our children. They're treated like little princes and princesses, given just about everything they want, seldom disciplined, seldom made to do anything they don't want to do. And yet, on the other hand, life in the womb can be very cheap indeed. In the USA, since Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in all the states, over 60 million babies have been murdered in the womb. In the UK, since abortion became what they called legal, safe and rare in 1967, around 9 million lives have been deliberately ended before they even seen the light of day. According to the World Health Organization, there are between 40 to 50 million abortions of unborn children every year. And the majority of those abortions are not for babies with no life expectancy or for the health of the mother, but simply because having a baby is inconvenient. People simply want to sin without any consequences for themselves. Their God is the God of the groin, carnal, fleshly self-indulgence, and that God is insatiable. This modern human right to have unrestricted sex on demand outweighs in modern society the right to life of the babies that inevitably result from that kind of behaviour. So what a mess. Our broken, sin-ruined society has conflicting attitudes to our children. On the one hand, they are entirely disposable. And on the other hand, they are spoiled rotten. Do you think I'm making an unfair comparison? As Christians, the Bible gives us the foundation of our worldview. 
Let's look at some examples of biblical teaching. Psalm 139 and verse 13. The psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skilfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 51 and verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And Luke chapter 1 verse 39. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. So are the unborn worth less than the children who have been born? Legislators and voters in the Irish Republic, abortion clinics, medical people, the so-called pro-choice lobby, broadcasters, the writers and the directors of the filthy soap operas that are so popular on our modern television sets all seem to think so. The legislators in our Westminster Parliament seem to think so. A Christian worldview, on the other hand, would suggest that life begins at conception and ends physically at death. Suppose a woman went to the doctor and she had with her her two-year-old child, for she had no one to mind the child. And she explained to the doctor that she had had a one-night stand and she'd become pregnant and she simply couldn't cope with two children. The doctor would say he understood her problem and asked her, Which child do you want to kill? The one who's two years old or the one who's been two months in the womb? The baby in the womb is a human baby in the very first stages of his or her life. And according to the scriptures, we have no right to murder it, even if our wicked government has made that legal. Let's go back to our original Bible reading, the text of Matthew chapter 19, verse 13 to 15. And let's see if we can draw any practical conclusions about children from this incident in the life and ministry of Jesus. We'll work through the passage from the standpoints of the people involved. I'm going to look at the parents and the disciples 
and the Saviour himself, and then the children. Scripture say, then little children were brought to him. So what about these parents? It's likely, of course, in this situation that the children would have been brought by their mothers. Why would they want to do that? What's the reason for it? I mean, who wouldn't want their children to meet the Saviour? What Christian parent would want to do anything else but to introduce their little ones to the Saviour whom they themselves have met? Wouldn't they want their children to have eternal life, to be in heaven forever with them? Wouldn't they want to welcome them in eternity when the family circle will be unbroken? Anyone who loves the Lord will want to bring their children to Jesus. They will bring them to the church, they bring them to Christian education, they will pray with them, they will teach them in their home, and hopefully bringing them to a knowledge of the blessings of the Lord, they will also learn to trust him. These women obviously did that. They must have known the Saviour, especially these women of Judah. They must have witnessed the love and the power of Christ, seen his healing ability. I suppose it's stretching it to say that these women were Christians, but they were certainly believers in Christ in some sense, whether that was a full understanding of who he was, but they are certainly an example to us. These are women who would have had faith in bringing these children to Jesus. They must have been confident that he would receive them. Again, that's a lesson for us that in bringing our children to Jesus in prayer and for Christian education, we believe his promises and trust his word and claim our children for the Lord, knowing that the promise of salvation is unto you and to your children and to those who are afar off, as many as the Lord would call. And we read that in Acts chapter 2. They were people who had courage. Their own religious leaders didn't support Jesus. In fact, they were openly hostile and antagonistic towards him. But that didn't stop them from wanting to bring their children to meet the Saviour. They didn't let any discouragement stand in their way. And they were covenantal. They believed that their children were capable of actually receiving such a blessing. You know that the youngest of children are capable of having a simple saving faith in the Lord Jesus. After all, saving faith is described as simply a mustard seed the smallest of all the tiny seeds, and it is the gift of God. And children can exercise that simple faith in Christ. And these mothers certainly believed that. So they brought their little children to Jesus, that he might put his hands on them and pray. That would have been a way of conferring blessing upon them, a bit like a father blessing his son. In Genesis, Isaac blessed Jacob by placing his hands upon him, just like any parent. They wanted their children to be blessed, and so do we. The next thing that happens in the narrative is that the disciples rebuked them. The disciples became a sort of a self-appointed security team. I wonder were they angry? I wonder, was there anger in their voices? There's an old song that depicts the disciples as being stern. 
when mothers of Salem their children brought to Jesus. The stern disciples drove them back and bade them to depart. But Jesus saw them ere they fled, and sweetly smiled and kindly said, Suffer little children to come unto me. What would make those disciples so angry with these mothers of Salem that they would want to drive them away from Jesus? I wonder, is it because children ultimately are an inconvenience, even in religious circles? I wonder, do we in church mimic the attitudes of secular society who see our children as a burden, as an inconvenience? Some people don't even want to see children in church. It has become the case in recent years where children are sent away during worship to be cared for and very frequently just to be amused elsewhere. Now that should never be the case in Reformed churches. Children should remain in the church. They should learn that the worship of God is a family matter, that mum and dad and the children worship God together. But surely they'll be disruptive. Yeah, possibly. But it's the parents' responsibility to teach their children how we approach God, what worship is about and how to believe, and discipline helps too. And modern parenting methods don't include too much in the way of discipline. Were the disciples being angry? Or were they being protective? Jesus has been healing and teaching and fielding the attacks of the Pharisees. He has no home. He's sleeping under the skies. He's physically exhausted. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20 reminds us that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So surely it's right and proper that such a great teacher is shielded from the demands of these women and their noisy, disruptive children. Some commentators deny that the disciples are being angry with the mothers, or in any way stern, but rather that they're just acting out of concern for the welfare of the Lord Jesus. Now, whichever of these reasons is right, there's no doubt that the disciples were acting contrary to what was expected of them. It is not the business of followers of Jesus to prevent anyone from coming to the Saviour. So what was the response of Jesus to the women and to his disciples? I think that this must be one of the most appealing and wonderful passages in the earthly ministry of Christ. He loves little children, and he loves to have the little children come to him, and he likes to bless them. His attitude towards children is one of welcome. Look at his rebuke. In verse 14, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. There is no one who should prevent anyone coming to Jesus, let alone a little child. Matthew Henry, the commentator, points out here that the children of believers belong to the church, that they are part of the covenant community. He says the children of believing parents belong to the kingdom of heaven and are members of the visible church. There's something very special, very privileged and blessed about being born into a Christian home. 
a place where God's name is honoured and worshipped, where Christ is honoured, where the word of God is read, where prayers are offered. Paul even tells us that if even one parent is a believer, the children are holy, separate, kept clean from the world. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Remember that promise of salvation. That's to you and to your children. They are the heirs of that promise. And for that very reason, they are welcome to Christ. And Jesus rebukes those who would turn them away. So see his response. In verse 15, he laid his hands upon them. He lays his hands on the children and he blesses them. How kind is the Saviour to bid children welcome. Note that it was the Saviour who first laid his hands on the children. It's perfectly feasible to think that some of these little ones were babes in arms. Some were shy little toddlers hiding behind their mother's skirts. Children are often shy. Children don't readily run from their parents to others, even to their older relatives. Like we sinners, we don't reach out to Christ of our own free will. Paul affirms in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 that there is none who seeks after God. So Jesus takes the initiative as he always does and he welcomes them and even when they can't or don't reach out to him, he reaches out to them. And he blesses them. You can witness the saving love of the Lord in this. He welcomes the children. He reaches out to them. He blesses them. And what about the children themselves? Jesus completely reverses our conventional thinking. Children are not an inconvenience or people of no consequence. In fact, he tells us if we want to be followers of Jesus, if we want to be blessed by him, we too must come as little children. He says, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So great is their value that they are our example of humility and dependency. There is another great comfort that we take from this part of the narrative of Matthew where Jesus welcomes little children and where he never regards them as an inconvenience. You see, abortion leaves an awful scar on a woman's life. Women who have had this procedure have often been pressured or manipulated or made to feel under some obligation to bring their unborn child's life to an end and afterwards are frequently burdened with deep guilt. Those women need Jesus. 
It is for women like that that the words of Jesus here in Matthew 19 will bring so much comfort and hope. We are told by him that of such is the kingdom of heaven. J.C. Ryle points us to this in his expository thoughts on the Gospel of Matthew. He writes, The Lord Jesus cursed tenderly for the souls of little children. That mighty heart of his has room for the babe in the cradle as well as the king on the throne. He regards each infant as possessing within its little body an undying principle that will outlive the pyramids of Egypt, that will see sun and moon quenched at the last day. With such a passage as this before us, we may surely hope well about the salvation of all who die in infancy. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And because of this, and because Christ died for sinners like us, there is hope and there is forgiveness even for women who have had an abortion. Even for the men who have encouraged them to have that abortion or have even paid for their abortion. Even for the abortionists, those merciless medics who rip unborn babies from their mother's wombs, there is forgiveness in Christ. For his atoning death on the cross paid the penalty for all our sins, no matter how great those sins may be. Even the sin of murder, even the sin of the murder of an infant, they can be forgiven, they can be healed. They can know that one day they will meet those little babies whose earthly lives they destroyed. They can be reunited in heaven, where there is no more death or sorrow or pain, and where they can greet each other as redeemed souls with eternal life in Jesus. That's the lesson of Jesus and the children. The lesson that he never regarded little babies as an inconvenience, like so many millions of people have done all throughout human history. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. He values them and welcomes them, and he even uses them as a role model for us, and we should do likewise. In Psalm 127, verse 3 to 5, the psalmist says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Like the arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed.
Heavenly Father, today we've been thinking about the plight of unborn babies whose mothers regard them as an inconvenience and our sinful society provides the way for them to be disposed of as if they were little more than human debris. Forgive us, Father. Forgive our nation. Bring salvation to this benighted land and time. And we pray, Lord, for those who go and witness outside clinics and those who offer help to the mothers of unborn children. And we pray for those mothers. And we ask, Father, that you would smite their conscience, turn them away from their evil and wickedness, convict them of their sin, and bring them to Christ for salvation. 